and, and you, you see it in Romans 6, but you see it especially in Romans 5. Death is a bad thing, right? Death yeah. is not a good thing, right? Death, mm. is, death is the wages of sin. Um, death reigns from, um, from Adam to Moses. Um, and death is the enemy who must, who must be overcome. In chapter 7, death is, uh, uh, death is the problem that Torah can't quite free me from. And so in chapter six, you know, again, like I said, we see this in, in death, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And yet, if you read the chapter carefully, we also see that there is a positive connotation to the word death. And here I do nod to Philippians 2 again, that death is the ultimate extent of Christ's faithfulness to God. And so while death is the wages of sin at the end of the chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, it is the thing that we are baptized into. It's the thing that we participate in. And why would we want to participate in Jesus' death? What, what could be pleasant about participating in Jesus' death? Well, in Romans 6, um, and I think in Paul in general, Jesus' death becomes a metonym, a way of grasping the entirety of Jesus' faithfulness to God. And so now I can see precisely why I might want to participate in Christ's faithfulness to God, that as I, that as Christ is faithful to God, even to the point of death, and they lay his body down into the tomb, and that challenge to God's honor has been thrown, the glove is on the ground, will he, will he pick it up? Will he abandon the one who's been faithful to him uh, there to the grave? Or will he raise him back up to new life? And of course, that's exactly what God does. So also we participate in Christ's death, his faithfulness, we find ourselves laid beneath the water, and then just assuredly as Christ is raised to new life, we come up out of the water, raised to new life, participating not just in his faithfulness to God, but then also God's faithfulness right back to Jesus. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today I sat down with Dr. Rafael Rodriguez, professor of New Testament at Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee. Rafael and I have known each other for a few years now, and I enjoyed catching up with him about one of the books in the New Testament that most intimidates me as a teacher and a minister, Paul's massive letter to the Romans. It is no exaggeration to say Romans is literally one of the longest letters written during the period of the Roman Empire or even the Roman Republic. I find Romans challenging for a couple of reasons. The latter is a lengthy, sophisticated, and sometimes subtle argument about the nature of God's salvation for Jews and Gentiles. And it seems that only near the end of the letter does Paul really get to the main point he has been building towards for about 13 or so chapters. In addition to all of these issues, just in the text itself, there is an unbelievable amount of secondary literature written on Romans that would take a lifetime to read even just the best stuff. Thankfully, though, there are folks out there like Rafael Rodriguez who can help us cut through the noise and can bring a sense of clarity to what is arguably Paul's greatest and most sophisticated presentation of the gospel. If you enjoy the kinds of conversations we're having here on the podcast, especially this series on the New Testament, 
would you be willing to like and subscribe to us? And maybe share us with somebody you think that might benefit from this? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Raphael, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I am excited to dig into the book of Romans with you. Appreciate you tuning in with us today, sir. Thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we get started, uh, folks who are in uh, you know, formal biblical studies will probably know your name um, and how you've been involved in a couple of different projects uh, in the historical study of Jesus. And also, I think these days you've moved on to Paul. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to move on to Paul. I keep getting myself drawn back to Jesus. He does that to some of us. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good problem to have. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, but so, so folks in that kind of world will know you, but for other folks who um, maybe you know, don't follow formal biblical studies or maybe their interests are elsewhere, help us get to know you a little bit. How, how long have you been teaching? Where are you teaching? And uh, what kind of things besides Jesus, right? What other kinds of things do you, do you find yourself really drawn towards in terms of study and, and, and teaching and things like that? Yeah, I, uh, I'm at Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is my 16th year here. My wife and I moved here when our, uh, at the time, only child was uh, seven months. And now I'm teaching her to drive. So um, prayers uh, requested. And, and that's been fun um, to follow accepted. you on Facebook. It's been fun to keep up with that on Facebook. She's actually, she's actually great. Uh, so I can't, I can't complain, but, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So yes, our 15 year old is my kind of barometer for how long we've been here. Um, we, uh, let's see, um, we moved here, uh, from Sheffield, uh, in England where I was working my PhD on the historical Jesus and on social memory theory. Um, did a brief stint in Ohio for six months between uh, Sheffield and here and, um, you know, mostly teach Greek and the gospel of Mark and the letter to the Romans uh, here. That's actually how I got into Pauline study is we were uh, expanding our online, uh, our online program and needed a course on Romans. And um, so I got assigned that and thought, yeah, instead of I taught Romans before, instead of returning to the wells I'd already dug, I'd work through the text fresh. And as I was writing the notes, I realized, oh, man, I'm I'm saying things that I've never said before uh, and things that I don't see other people saying, which makes me nervous because in general, <laughs> when, you know, a very creative uh, um, uh, aspect of the church's tradition uh, has 2000 years of things to say, and I'm outside of that, maybe that should give me pause. Yeah, um, yeah. It did give me pause, but I found it. Uh, I thought this at, at least is worth considering. Obviously, I think I'm right, but uh, even in those places where I'm wrong, let's introduce this into the discussion. And uh, and it's been uh, it's been an interesting five or six years of of that. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, just curious, um, what's besides Romans um, and Gospel of Mark? What's maybe something mm -hmm. else that you that you don't get to teach very much, but you really enjoy teaching? I. It, a black hole in my knowledge, well, there are many of them, but um, one is um, uh, the Thessalonian letters. I, I just, I know nothing about them. So last year I thought, I'm going to sit down and work through the Greek text and found them just fascinating. Yeah. So this semester I have my intermediate Greek class translating First Thessalonians to give Ooh. me some time to think about it. And I've got, I've got a couple of projects in mind. Uh, so I'd like to start working on, uh, on the Thessalonian stuff. Uh, you'd asked earlier about uh, other things that I like to read about and study about, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and and there's lots kind of biblical 
uh, scholarship wise, but I find um, that stuff outside of the Bible is kind of more interesting to me just because I know less about it. Sure, so yeah. I don't get involved in the arguments as much. So this semester I started our MBA program uh, here at Johnson, which is really uh, kind of interesting because it's completely different than anything I've ever done before. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah. <clears throat> talking about things outside the Bible, um, it, you went very much outside the Bible. With, yes. with that with MBA, that when he first mentioned that, I was thinking, all right, so like maybe he's going to dig into like apostolic fathers or some other <laughs> stuff like that. Uh-huh. I've actually, just last night, Sunday evening, we do have, we have a, um, like a little Bible study Zoom meeting from our church. And just last night, I wrapped up a, a series on the apostolic fathers where we kind of mm-hmm. walk through. And I, I don't know how it is for folks in the independent Christian churches, um, for folks in churches of Christ. And, you know, again, to remind everybody, like we're theological cousins here, right? Both came out mm-hmm. of this, you know, American Restoration Movement and Second Great Awakening. So there's a lot, there's a lot of substantive overlap between, you know, independent Christian churches, which is where you find yourself, Churches of Christ, mm-hmm. where I am. Um, many folks, and at least Churches of Christ, have uh, taken kind of a negative view. If it happened after the New Testament, it's early Catholicism. It's mm-hmm. it's worthless. Toss it out. You know, it, it, basically they all they all hear Ignatius's hyper obsession with following the bishop, mm-hmm. rather than actually digging into the things themselves. And so that's what we've been doing. And I gotta say, it was actually kind of fun. You know, I, I did yeah. a little bit of that before. It just took a one hour credit course class, mm-hmm. um, one hour credit class in uh, in seminary. That was a fun little jaunt through. Mm-hmm. We. Looked at did okay first Clement, mm-hmm. and uh, just some highlights Epistle of Barnabas, and then we wrapped up with first ten chapters of Epistle to Diognetus. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's where I thought it's you were fa- going to fa- go. It, it's and all that's fascinating stuff, and I, I try to tell my students like these are not texts to be af- afraid of certainly um, because they're out there, and there's, you know there's nothing we can do to, yeah. to hide them um, unless Dan Brown is correct about his theory of canonization. If you'd said that a second later, I was going to spit Dr. Pepper. I was. <laughs> that's that's why I wanted to get that in there. You almost got me. But I, I tell I tell students like these are. These are fascinating post-biblical texts where we see our brothers and sisters in the faith mm-hmm. wrestling with the questions about being the people of God where they are. They're very often different questions than we're wrestling with, so they can seem irrelevant, or their uh, or their their way of wrestling and their answers are different than the ones we would we would provide. Um, but yeah, learning from the things that we think they did well, learning from the cautionary tales of the things they did they did poorly, and. Uh, is is fascinating. So you know, you mentioned Ignatius and his and his you know consistent focus on not doing anything outside of the bishop. Yeah. Um, you know, and it would be easy to read that kind of knee jerk reactionarily, reactionarily, and um, and reject the kind of early Catholicism of, mm-hmm. that that we might see in Ignatius, or or you could flip that around and see that for Ignatius, he's worried about church unity and for him the bishop is the guarantor of church unity the problem yeah. with doing something apart from the bishop isn't that the bishop is um you know is the office that sustains the life of the church it's that this is what sustains the unity of the church which mm-hmm. very much speaks to those of us with the campbellite uh, heritage yeah it should yeah yeah it's um it's a fun read i, I was telling them last night it's like okay as we've seen right there's some times where these folks you know, they faithfully adapt and adopt 
what we see in the Old and New Testaments. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage you to read these like you would read, like you would pick up C.S. Lewis, right? Yeah, the, that's right. The stuff that jives, go for it. The stuff that's a little strange or maybe misses the mark, yeah, no thanks. And mm-hmm. then that's uh, that's a that's a useful way to to take advantage of these things. So. Yeah, that's very good. I've I've actually used one of your uh, you know one of your uh, Church of Christ popular authors. I've 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 said it's like reading Max Licato, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's a that's a good way to look at it. So, but we're not here to talk about the Apostolic Fathers. That's we're right. going to dig into uh, Paul's Paul's masterpiece. Literally one of the longest letters from the ancient world, mm-hmm. the letter to the Romans. Uh, Raphael, help us out here. One question that I've been asking everybody I've interviewed in this series on the New Testament is help us understand what's the genre, what's the literary type, literary mm-hmm. category of this particular work, and then what does that tell us about how we should understand that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, you know, to, to start with the most obvious is Romans is a letter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and most of us in the in New Testament studies are going to take, uh, take Romans as a genuine letter, despite its, despite its massive length. So it's not a, it's not a sermon masquerading as a letter, as we might say about something like, like Hebrews, yeah. uh, or something else masquerading as a letter, like First John, um, um, but a genuine, a genuine letter. Um, and as soon as we get that, the first thing that we say about letters is these are occasional texts, right? They are not uh, treatises or, um, you know, philosophical or theological thought experiments or uh, debates or anything. This is uh, an attempt to interject the apostolic presence into a specific situation. Yeah. Something going on that shouldn't be, or there's something that's not going on that should be, um, or there's, um, uh, there's an environment where the apostle may be worried that this or that course of action or way of thinking may win out. And so, uh, and so the apostle will, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking very much of this technical phrase we, we refer to as the rhetorical situation, this, mm-hmm. this, this thing that's, that, that the apostle wants to um, uh, address, but he's absent and so wants to um, make himself, make himself present. For Romans, um, the probably the most popular rhetorical situation uh, that's brought to bear on reading Romans is the split or the friction between the strong and the weak uh, in chapters 14 and 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we get as, as, as we get talking, I'll, I'll say I don't think that's the most helpful lens for reading okay. uh, for reading Romans through. For me, I, I, I take a different approach, which is also one that's present in the in, in the history of scholarship, which is that this is, this is a letter of introduction. Um, Mm -hmm. and so this is Paul introducing himself to people that he's uh, never met, although we'll find out at the end of the letter that he actually knows quite a few people in, uh, in in Rome. So he's introducing himself, but it's more than, it's more than a passive, hi, I'm Paul. Nice to meet you. It's also, um, it's also a sense of, um, uh, it's an authoritative introduction. It's Mm -hmm. hi, I'm Paul. I'm the one that Jesus has, uh, as, uh, commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so, um, you know, the bus that you're on is my bus. And uh, uh, I want to, uh, I want to introduce myself uh, to you. Yeah, yeah. So an occasional letter, right? Like I said, not a treatise. Paul was not sitting down to write uh, the, you know, the first century equivalent of John Calvin's Institutes, 
Yeah, that's know, right. or, or something along those lines. Paul has uh, Paul has heard of an issue or two or three, and uh, really kind of takes the opportunity to. Would it be fair to say that he takes the opportunity to insert himself into into the churches in Rome? Is that mm-hmm. is that a fair way to, to describe what Paul's doing? Yeah, here? I think that's I think that's right. I'm less likely to say he has heard about um, a specific issue or two in uh, in in Rome that he wants to address the way he has say about the churches in Galatia or in Corinth. Um, I'm more likely to say, and this is. Um, um, how, how you worded it, I think that's I think that's right. That uh, the, an image I like to say is that Paul is extending his apostolic umbrella over over the 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 yeah. Roman like uh, communities image. of faith. Yeah, yeah. Um, that for Paul, it's great that they're Christians, of course, um, um, but that for Paul, there there is something serious about his. You know, it's what he says in in, in Galatians, right? Peter would be uh, would be the apostle to the circumcised. Paul would be the apostle to the uncircumcised. Well, there's a vibrant community of faith in the capital city, the most influential uh, center in the Roman world, and Paul's never been there. Mm-hmm. So for Paul, that's a problem. Uh, it's one he's wanted to address for a long time uh, and has not been able to. And now he finds himself almost as close to Rome as he's ever gotten. Right? He's in Achaia. He's in Greece, in Corinth when he when he writes Romans. But he's about to head in exactly the wrong direction. He's going east. He's going to Jerusalem. Um, but his plan uh, is to get to Rome after that. And so now's a good time to send a letter. Uh, you know, we're halfway. We're halfway between Jerusalem and Rome already. We'll go ahead and send Phoebe uh, and whoever she might travel with, uh, with this letter, and uh, and that will um, kind of pave the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, remind me if we don't get back to Phoebe in uh, in Romans sixteen because that's a that's a that's a part of the book where a lot of folks will probably stop reading because it's mm-hmm. you know it's it's not stuff like you know we know all good, we know god works all things together for good like it, it's not yeah. the good stuff right but there's yeah, a lot right. of historically interesting things in in that chapter all right so y- you've given us kind of a good good lay of the land for sort of what paul's doing i like this image of uh, uh, holding his apostolic uh, apostolic umbrella over the churches in Rome. I, that's, a, that's a neat image there. Help us, uh, help us kind of dig into Romans a little bit more deeply now. What are some, some major emphases we see Paul talking about? You mentioned strong and weak earlier, but you wanted mm-hmm. to maybe l- lean off of that a little bit and go another mm-hmm. direction as maybe the strongest. Help us dig into this a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, Rom- Romans has a couple of fairly clearly distinct sections that despite all of the debates and um, and discussions about how best to read Romans, we all basically agree that Romans one through eight kind of can, are, are are focused on you know an issue or or a closely connected set of issues. You know, we may make a a, a distinction, uh, we may mark a, a a transition from chapter four into chapter five, but Romans one to eight belong together. Romans nine to eleven uh, belong together. Romans twelve to fifteen. Uh, belong belong together, um, and the way that I explain these these major sections here is that, and the letter as a whole is that Paul is writing, and this is this is key. I, I stress this in the classes that I teach that Paul is writing. He's writing to a diverse church in Rome, absolutely, but he's writing to a particular part of that diverse church. He's writing to the Gentile Christians who are in 
in Rome. These are the ones who are who make up his uh, apostolic commission. Um, they're not the entire church in Rome, but they're the ones that he's writing mm -hmm. to. Um, and I stress to my students, this doesn't mean he doesn't imagine that other Christians here, this would be Jewish Christians, right? That Jewish Christians won't hear the letter or have uh, have a comment on it or see themselves in parts of it, but that Paul's comments are tailored to and aimed at uh, the Gentile readers in Rome. And what he's saying to them in those first eight chapters is that the, uh, and I like this phrase, I, uh, there's a number of people use it, but I'm getting it from Matthew, uh, Matthew Thiessen's work, that the Gentile problem, that the separation or the, um, the uh, strangeness, the, uh, the extraneous location of the Gentiles outside of the people of God, that Gentile problem is sufficiently robust that the Torah can't answer it. The Torah is not a solution to the Gentile problem. Um, so we'll see that come up in a number of ways. And if the Torah doesn't solve the Gentile problem, then what does? Here we get a couple of different answers, but that point in the same direction. Uh, one would be the faithfulness of Jesus. Uh, that participating in that faithfulness. Uh, so I'm thinking of Romans 3, Romans 6, we can talk about these things. And that faithfulness uh, uh, of Jesus and participating in that faithfulness leads to the gift of the Spirit, which is becomes really prominent in chapter 8. Yeah. So if Torah can't solve or resolve the Gentile problem, what does? And it's, it's the gospel, right? That's chapters 1 through 8. If that's chapters one through eight, what is uh, what are chapters nine through eleven doing? And here I um, I, I understand these chapters as a um, a reflection or a I, I want to avoid using the word treatise, but as an excursion on the faithfulness of God. If mm -hmm. if Torah cannot resolve our problem, the Gentile problem, and instead the gospel does, the gift of the Spirit. Well, then what about uh, what what can we say about God's faithfulness where he's made certain promises, he's entered into certain covenants with Israel? Is God abandoning them in order to embrace this new people through the gospel and this new yeah. covenant? And Paul's, you know, Paul's language, of course, is by no means, may genoita, may it never be, right? Uh, so he says in chapter 9, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And chapters 9 through 11 are showing how despite this new solution to the Gentile problem that Paul finds at work in the gospel, God's faithfulness to his word to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and all through history, uh, his faithfulness remains secure. Um, the image of the olive tree helps resolve, uh, helps uh, bring that, you know, portray that faithfulness yeah. um, in really powerful ways. And then Romans 12 to 15 then is, okay, then how do we, how do we live? Um, and here Torah the law of Moses will make a, a, a surprising reappearance here, right? If Torah couldn't solve the Gentile problem in, in chapters one through eight, um, is it just obsolete? Is it gone? And again, Paul would say, you know, by no means we, we establish Torah, he says in chapter three, verse 31. And what we find in Romans 12, Romans 13, is that his, his encouragement to the Gentile Christians in Rome to pursue, he calls it the good or to pursue love. These are big themes in chapter 12, right? That these things fulfill the law, fulfill the Torah. This is Romans 13, 8 and, uh, and, and 13, 10, that, um, that all the things that the Torah commands are summed up in love your neighbor, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And that can be fraught. That can be difficult in a Christian community. We don't need Paul to tell us that. We just go to church on Sunday and find out difficult <laughs> it can be to love our right, uh, yeah. to love our neighbors. And yeah. especially when we have such different ways of living out our convictions about the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. Um, when we have such different ways, and some of us embrace some particular action. Um, you know, for me, the, a, a good example here is I, I've I've embraced the action of not smoking cigarettes. I, I used to smoke. Sure. I don't smoke anymore. This is one way I live out the, the life of faith. And I have to admit that it's easy for me to look at people who do smoke and say, oh, you're not quite as faithful as I am. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a natural response. Sure, yeah. And it sounds trivial, but, it, but it, it, if I don't think about it, it comes up without, uh, well, without thinking. It, it comes, yeah. it's, my default, it's my default setting. I think we see similar things happening in the first century church, right? So one group says, we are going to thank God for this food that's on our plate. And another group says, we're going to thank, uh, we're going to uh, reject the plates of pagans um, and do so out of thanksgiving and faithfulness to God. And it's really easy for each side to look at the other and say, you are being unfaithful to God. Paul yeah. says, this is not what love of neighbor looks like. Yeah. So that's kind of my my long, but you know, now we've covered 16 right. chapters. Yeah. We've talked about Romans. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Something that you mentioned when you were covering chapters one through eight, you used a particular phrase. And because I'm aware of the conversations that are going on, I picked up on it. Other folks may uh, may have missed it when you said the faithfulness of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, typically, I think people are are used to hearing that as faith in Jesus, but you worded it faithfulness of Jesus. Can you dig into that a little bit for us, please? What's the difference between faith in Jesus versus the faithfulness of Jesus? Yeah, yeah, it's good, and I'll, I'll try to get into it without getting into the niceties of how we translate Greek sure, phrases yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Th- and things like that. That's right, um, but yes, th- that's right. First, let me say that um, I'm not choosing one and rejecting the other. Um, I think even in Paul, faith in Jesus becomes very important and mm-hmm. we can find that. But we are talking about is Paul, uh, what is Paul saying in particular moments? So if he's saying faithfulness of Jesus and he's not saying faith in Jesus, that's important to understand in particular moments mm-hmm. without, uh, without suggesting or worrying, are we rejecting faith in Jesus? Absolutely. And so we get a couple of, uh, we get, uh, and a good example of this dynamic of of kind of trying to embrace both, recognizing that the faithfulness of Jesus is important, and that that doesn't involve rejecting faith in Jesus, mm-hmm. is that um, is that thesis statement of Romans in chapter one, verses sixteen and seventeen. Right, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, uh, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Right, so this who believes implies, of course, faith in Jesus. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then we get this really strange phrase and our English translations um, do different things with it. But Paul says, basically, by faith, for faith. And um, and I don't think that this is as difficult as we often treat it. Some translations suggest that, you know, Paul is just emphasizing faith, so faith from first to last, or so that it might be utterly by faith. <clears throat> Pardon me, but I think uh, I think it's it's actually not hard to see that Paul's doing two different things. He's saying that the righteousness of God is being revealed by faith. That that faith has something to do with revealing God's righteousness. And here I'm I'm going to to suggest 
and Paul will do this more in chapter three, that that the that God's revelation is revealed by and through Jesus faithfulness to God. I'll come back to that in just a second by faith. And it's revealed to faith. That is those of us who encounter the gospel message, who encounter the gift of the spirit or receive the gift of the, uh, of the spirit. We see in this message of Jesus faithfulness to God, his, his righteousness. Yeah. I think that that, I think the, the, the most important um, connotation or implication that comes from this is that for Paul, Jesus is utterly faithful to God. He is faithful as to, to pick up the language of Philippians too. He is faithful, obedient to death, right? Yeah. He's faithful yeah. to death. Um, but this creates a bit of a, you know, a, a bit of a challenge for God's honor. If, if loyalty to God results in death, why would I pursue loyalty to God. This seems like a not good thing. Um, But this is where the righteousness of God is revealed, is that Jesus is utterly faithful to God, even to the point of death. And God, rather than abandoning Jesus to death, restores him to life. And that's, of course, how chapter one, verse 17 ends, as it is written. And then you'll, you'll hear that I render this a little different than our normal translations. The righteous one will live by faith, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, So not those who are righteous or whoever is righteous or a, a, a vague, non-defined, the righteous, yeah. but rather it's Jesus, the righteous one. He doesn't die by his faith. He lives by his faith. And this is what it means to say the righteousness of God is revealed uh, by faith. Yeah, yeah. And so this notion then, um, you know, to kind of bring bring our audience up to speed here, this notion is that for Paul, Faith in Jesus is absolutely essential, as you mentioned earlier, right? There's no way to get around that faith, particularly in the sense of, right, fidelity or allegiance, right? Much more loyalty, reliability. Uh, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. Of course, you're picking up on Matthew Bates's word allegiance, which which I like. That's a that's a good. There it is. Got it right it's here. A, that's a, <laughs> yeah. that's 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 a good word. That faith yeah. isn't a way of thinking. It's a way of living and acting and being in the world. It's not what we do with our minds. It's what we do with our bodies. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That is absolutely essential. Another essential component to to the fulfillment, really, of God's promises, especially to Israel, but also. Really, the promises to Abraham, you know, to bless all nations through Abraham, would be Jesus's own faithfulness, his own fidelity, his own loyalty, his own allegiance to God's plans and purposes. Paul is telling us, am I right, that we have to hold both of these together at the same time. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think, interestingly, for those of us who, I mean, the Stone Campbell movement, we kind of sit awkwardly vis-a-vis the Reformation. Like, we're not Catholics, so we're Protestants, but we're not Protestants. We're this other thing. And I think that this is an... Uh, sort of unhappy Protestants. A, yeah, 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 that's right. But this but this speaks well to a classic conundrum in Protestant theology, right? That, you know, is faith a work, right? Mm-hmm. Do, do we have to... Do we earn our salvation by having faith? And the faithfulness of Jesus debate, I think, is is a you know, is, is a really important component of our response to that, uh, is that, yes, we absolutely have to have faith. We respond in obedience and with allegiance and fidelity, but understand that salvation is, to say that salvation is a work of faith does not mean I'm saying it's a work of my faith. It's not my faith that saves me. 
It's Christ's faithfulness to God and my participation in that faithfulness through the act now, you know, channeling Romans 6, through the act of repentance, baptism, participating in his death, burial with him, and then being raised up to new life. Yeah. Also, to some degree, channeling uh, some of Philippians in there, too, how we participate in Christ's own sufferings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another example of our faithfulness. Yeah. So uh, this has been a uh, this has been a a really fun and engaging kind of walk through, you know, sort of the big sections of of Romans here. Let me ask about uh, chapters nine through 11 again, um, as we kind of turn away from one through eight. Um, Could could you. Could you accurately, though perhaps not precisely, could you accurately summarize chapters 9 through 11 by, by this statement? Israel, don't worry. God hasn't abandoned you. Is that a, is that a fair kind of thrust? Is that a fair way to describe the thrust of these chapters, or is there more to it? I, th- I, think, I think that captures the theme. The idea of Romans 9 to 11, I think it misses the audience of Romans 9 to 11. I don't think Paul is even in chapters 9 to 11 talking to Israel. Instead, I think he's talking about Israel Mm -hmm. to to Gentiles. And so, um, you know, I think that there is this kind of um, this kind of question of, you know, by the time you get to Romans 8, you have that confidence of, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in yeah. Christ Jesus. And we are more than conquerors and all things work together for the good, for those who love, yeah. uh, love him, uh, all of that. There's this confidence. And yet there's kind of this question mark in the background of, of, well, hold on. If I'm so assuredly, assuredly in, in the people of God, what about this other thing? What about this other covenant? What about, uh, what about Israel? And it's important, maybe this is a point to bring it in, I've, I've not said it yet, but it's an underlying theme here, is that it's common for people to read Romans as if Paul is encouraging his Gentile readers to kind of let go of and renounce their latent anti-Semitism, their, their superiority to, to the Jews. I actually think that's backwards. I think that as Paul, as we read Romans, what we see is Paul is Paul isn't worried that his readers, his Gentile readers are anti-Semitic. He's worried that they're philo-Semitic, that they're, that they're attracted to circumcision, that they're attracted to (laughs) Sabbath observance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so much more, um, uh, 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 much more open to uh, Jewish practice, Jewish theology and and whatnot. And so after eight chapters of arguing against, you know, don't worry about uh, circumcision. Uh, In fact, if you are circumcised, your circumcision will be counted as uncircumcision uh, and whatnot. Then, Mm -hmm. then, you know, kind of raises this question of, okay, great. So our, our covenant is, is good, but wait a minute, what about that earlier covenant? And so, so I suppose if I had to sum it up, I might reframe your phrase. and, And I would say it's, it's Paul saying to the Gentiles, Actually, the gospel is how God keeps his covenant with Israel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. You mentioned those who were maybe, um, maybe too open to, um, to, to Jewish practice um, or particular aspects of Jewish practice and Jewish theology. It seems like Paul might be concerned then that some folks are open to it to the degree that they might begin to think that something Jesus has done is insufficient? Mm. Is that Uh, a possibility? Perhaps, uh, who knows the mind of the apostle, uh, you know, not, not, not I, um, gospel and is, uh, you know, of course, something that we worry about, and it might be something that Paul worried about too. 
I, I wonder if it's rather this other thing that we find in Genesis 17, the circumcision chapter, and that mm. Paul quotes in Romans 4, which is God's promise to Abraham. Of course, in you know, chapter 12 of, of Genesis, the, the, the promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and here's the linchpin, right? And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yeah. So it's about, it's not about blessing Abraham's family and letting the rest of uh, of the earth suffer again, you know, now not in flood, but in fire. Instead, it's about choosing God's choosing Abraham's family to be the vehicle of blessing for the entire world. Um, and then the way that gets stated in Genesis 17, five is, uh, again, this is God, you know, appearing to Abraham. He's about to give the sign of the covenantal seal of circumcision. And he and God says to Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. And what I see as I read Romans is, as I read Paul, even, you know, Galatians especially, mm -hmm. um, uh, but other, other letters as well. What I see is Paul's concern that, um, that Gentiles, that non-Jews are part of the family of Abraham. And that if they reject their ethnic identity, if they reject their lineage and seek instead to become Jews, that they undermine or discount that promise of Abraham's father of many nations-ness, that if we try to make everybody who is a child of Abraham into one nation, um, then we uh, we make God smaller in, in the process. And yeah. so I think for Paul, it very much is an aspect of preserving the global scope of God's covenantal in, in intention, right? Not that anybody can become a Jew, but that anybody as anybody is the target of God's blessing. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you, uh, I like how you put that. It's like, it's almost like Paul is you know, wanting to take seriously that promise there in Genesis 12. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it mattered to him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I did not prompt you for this question ahead of time. And so if you just want to give a quick answer, that's fine. I, I, I figure this is something that you might cover in some of the beginning lectures for Romans that you've done. How did, how did the church in Rome get to this situation? How did, how did they, uh, you know, what, what's maybe the most likely historical reconstruction that we can give for kind of getting us into the situation where there appears to be some tension between you know, the, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And I can't give short answers um, in general. <laughs> um, uh, I laugh and your audience face palms. Oh, no. I'm going to listen but, to uh, this at two, two times speed. There we go. There we go. I'll try to talk a little slower. Um, so, so the unfortunate fact is we don't know much about Roman Christianity before the year 57 when, when Romans was written. Mm -hmm. uh, so Acts 2, right, in the, the, you know, the, the, the Pentecost, you know, 50 days after the resurrection um, and 10 days after the ascension, um, and Luke portrays people from all over the world gathering in Jerusalem, and he mentions some visitors from Rome. You know, we see them in Acts 2. Then we don't hear about Rome again um, until uh, later in the narrative, I think around Acts 20, Paul's intention to go to Rome, mm. um, the spirit telling him you'll go to Rome in, in a particular manner, uh, or Jesus telling him you'll be my witness also in Rome. And then when Paul arrives in Rome in Acts 28, we see that there's already uh, there's already an established community, and yet there are also Jews who can say, well, yeah, we've heard a lot about this, but we don't really know what's going on. So the situation is kind of befuddled. And yet in Paul's letter, 
written, you know, if we're, if we're mapping it to Acts narrative, written somewhere around Acts 18, Acts 19, um, not 18, Acts 19. Um, what we, what we find is, uh, well, nothing. We we just, we, we don't know. There's, (laughs) there's nothing to suggest how Paul's, uh, how uh, how the how the Roman Church gets that way. Right. Now the most the most famous historical event that scholars are going to use to explain the current character of of Roman Christianity is the expulsion of Jews or Jewish Christians. We're not exactly sure. Um, in the year forty nine, in the year forty nine, the Roman Emperor Claudius um, uh, expels the Jews. We get this strange citation in some of the Roman historians, Latin historians, uh, saying, on account of Crestus, C H R E S T U S, Crestus, which is a common slave name, but is also just one vowel away from Christus. Right. So maybe because of Christ. Uh, the Jews have been expelled, and we do see this in Acts 18. Priscilla and Aquila have come to Ephesus because of the expulsion from Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it looks like there's been some upheaval, some turmoil in the Roman church, um, and that maybe Jesus is actually the instigating factor here. Um, now, the, the, probably the thing that makes that I that makes me distinctive um, compared to other Roman scholars is the normal, uh, the normal inference to draw from this is that, the, that Jewish Christians have left the city and these Gentile Christians uh, have remained. And yeah. so Christianity becomes a Gentile flavored movement um, for the next you know, five years or so. Uh, yeah. in, five years after Claudius expels the Jews, Nero becomes emperor. Uh, in the year 54. And then three years after that, Paul writes his letter. So over those three years, we imagine some Jews um, returning to the city, finding that the church has been Gentilized, Gentilized has, has de-Judaized. They're no longer and singing traditional hymns. They're playing that's contemporary right. the, worship songs. <laughs> they brought drums in and that's exactly right. My Church and of Christ so, listeners are starting to squirm when you mention the drums. <laughs> As they should, right? <laughs> um, and so, and so the, um, and so we get, uh, so we get this situation that we imagine where Gentile Christians have embraced their Gentile identity, and Paul wants to encourage them in this. And yet, Jewish Christians are returning, and there's some conflict between the two. Mm. I actually don't find this very persuasive at all. Okay. I think much more likely is that the Gentiles who were responding to this message of Jesus as Israel's Messiah, as the one who fulfills Israel's prophets and the covenants with Abraham and Moses and David and all that, that these Gentiles are, uh, as I said before, philo-Semitic. They are attracted to things uh, Jewish. Um, And so the problem here is not as these Jews begin to return and you know Priscilla and Aquila will, will be mentioned in chapter 16 so apparently they've returned to Rome um, after, after uh, while, while Nero is the emperor um, uh, what I find in Paul is not an effort now to say to these Gentiles now now play nice with these with these Jews who are returning um, rather in, in instead it's it's much more of a um, encouragement to continue to embrace their Gentile identity. Mm-hmm. while forsaking their Gentile worship and embracing worship of God. And this is why I think that 
that language that I mentioned before in, in Romans 13, 8 and 10, that love of neighbor fulfills Torah is so important, right? How do Gentile, how should Gentiles sit in relation to the covenant that God made with his historic people, Israel? Paul says, if you love your neighbor as yourself and worship the creator God, you're good. Yeah, yeah. That is, like you mentioned, um, more of a distinct, uh, not necessarily unique to you, but more of a distinct view. Mm, I remember right. hearing when, um, I, man, I, goodness, I think it was my, it was my seventh semester of Greek in undergrad. I minored in Greek because mm -hmm. I thought it'd be fun. Um, uh -huh. And just just really had no idea, right? Had no idea that maybe God was saying, hey, Kevin, maybe, I, maybe you should do something like this. Maybe high school <laughs> history and social studies is a good route, but not for you. Uh -huh. <laughs> maybe you should go some other way with it. I remember reading and being taught that you know, this particular understanding of, well, now that, now that the Jews have come back, there's this tension, right? And, you know, they, they come to find, you know, all, like I said, all the, all the traditional hymns are gone, all the contemporary worship mm -hmm. songs are in style. Uh, but you're arguing really the other way around is that mm -hmm. perhaps some of these Gentile Christians were being, were either motivated or being tempted to, to find a greater degree of, uh, of expression for their devotion in um in more jewish guises rather than you know simply living like how they could as gentiles but still honoring god that's exactly right it's exactly what we see in galatians right this is exactly what we see in galatians that paul is paul is furious you know oh foolish galatians you know what's wrong with you galatians yeah. uh, and you know i i just want to know one thing from you having begun with the spirit are you eager to finish with the flesh right i i, I having you know did did you receive the spirit through faith or through works of the law and yeah. i mean paul is just apoplectic um that his that his gentile converts might say you know, that circumcision thing is beginning to sound like a good idea. And, uh, you know, Saturday's off. I like that. And, you know, bacon in this part of the world isn't as tempting as uh, as it will one day be. So maybe we can give up the pork and the shellfish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he, and so I think we have to we have to acknowledge that while distinctively Jewish practices are not particularly tempting for Western Christians, mm -hmm. We have ample evidence, both inside and outside the New Testament, that it was attractive and appealing for for uh, for early imperial Roman inhabitants, people in the people in and around the Roman Empire. They found Judaism uh, appealing for a number of things, especially for its uh, emphasis on worshiping the highest God, the Creator mm -hmm. God, and also its um, its value for the pursuit of virtue, which uh, which Gentiles were were keenly interested in, yeah. and Paul says, "Yeah, these things are good. The law is spiritual and holy and just, and yet I am fleshly. I am sinful. The law is not able to transform me." Uh, uh, and here I have to acknowledge, I'm thinking of myself. And Paul is using a Gentile voice here. Uh, I am not. Uh, I am not sufficient to live out. Torah standards. And so I find that even in my attempt to honor Torah, I break it. I need some, woe is me. Who will save me from this body of death? Hello, here's Jesus, here's yeah. spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't help but wonder, right. If there was a, uh, if there was a figure like Mel Brooks, as Rabbi Tuckman going around advertising, <laughs> you know, Hey, you know, 
circumcision. It's the latest rage with all the ladies. That's right. That's right. The one that scares me is, is it, is it Colossians, the circumcision not done with hands? And I think, you know, your parlor trick may, you know, may be interesting, but, uh, you know, if we're going to do circumcision, go ahead and use your hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah. I don't know if that's uh, appropriate or not. <laughs> I, I don't do a lot of editing with this. So, you know, if, if somebody doesn't like Robin Hood men in tights, you know, that's fair. It's not everybody's <laughs> cup of tea. But anyway, um, last thing I want to talk, uh, last thing I want to ask you about um, in terms of helping us kind of get a, 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 a deep but broad overview of the book is this notion of the strong and weak in the last couple of chapters. Oh, and, and then I want to ask about Phoebe. Okay, so last, uh, the penultimate thing I want to talk to you about. There we go. This issue of strong and weak. Help us kind of work through that a little bit. It is it as easy as Jew and Gentile? Can we put strong and weak on there, or is it more more nuanced than that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely an unhelpful way of reading these chapters, which is hard to say because it's such a popular sure. and powerful way of 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 reading of reading mm-hmm. these chapters. But we should note a couple of things. We should note first of all that Paul never ever um, equates. Uh, weakness with Jews or Jewish practices. The closest he gets is he's using the word for um, for common, um, or uh, or we might translate it unclean, but it's really it's common um, or vulgar. That is, you know, kind of a Jewish a, a Jewish word for describing uh, for for describing food. But he never says the weak are Jews or involved in Jewish practices, mm-hmm. and he certainly never says the strong are are, are Gentiles. In fact, uh, in fact, we'll we'll come to that in a little bit. What interests me about Romans fourteen and fifteen, and I'm I'm intrigued because I haven't quite sussed it out. I'm I'm still wrestling with this. Sure. So yeah. if my answer feels tentative, it's because part of the answer is. I don't know. I'm glad we right. give you this that, opportunity to, uh, absolutely. to flesh this out here. Footnote, footnote me, okay, in your commentary. Absolutely, I'll say I'll, <laughs> I'll say this as I uh, as as I came to realize in my discussion with Kevin Burr yeah. and his audience. Uh, exactly, um, is that Paul's Paul's language of weak is found throughout chapter 14. And Paul never uses the word strong there in chapter 14. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about the weak. And uh, 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 a, a question that we regularly wrestle with is, how, how can Paul t- address his readers this way? How can, he, how can he rhetorically create a group that he labels the weak, right? The weak party, the party of the weak, and think that any of his readers are going to place themselves in that in that group and say, yep, that, that's us. We're the weak. You know, this, this is insulting, right? This is, this is, um, you know, you know, imagine you were, you, you were doing, you know, church small groups and you named one of your groups, you know, um, you know, the, the leches. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I guess in, in, in South Texas, the milks, like that doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, but um, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't make any, uh, any yeah. sense. And with one or two exceptions, and I, I have to acknowledge there are one or two exceptions, it seems to make best sense to me to read Romans 14, not as Paul saying that any of his intended readers are weak, but that his intended readers are aware of other people who are weak, whose mm-hmm. behavior it differs from theirs. Um, and he, uh, and he's standing up for them. You know, he's saying, you know, they avoid food, uh, they avoid meat and, um, and, and that's weak, but at the same time, they're your brother in Christ. They are one for whom the Lord died, and we will not, or you ought not, and this is the language he uses, you ought not um, hurt your brother or sister for the sake of food, right? Um, and so there seems to be this differentiation between who the weak are and who Paul's 
readers are. On the one hand, we can say that the weak don't eat meat. On the other hand, we can say that the weak do differentiate some days from other days. Most of us, or many of us anyway, interpret this as Sabbath observance, um, as well as festivals, you know, new moons and, sure. um, and other, uh, other Jewish festivals. Paul seems to, Paul seems to identify um, those kinds of practices as weak. Um, and if any of his readers are engaged in those practices, I, I, I would stress these are Gentiles who are taking on Jewish practices. And we've already seen how Paul has some suspicious about uh, some suspicions uh, about those things. But he doesn't say we, we who are weak or those of you who are weak. Again, the weak are they, not you and certainly not, not we. Yeah. It's not until he gets into chapter 15 when he says we who are strong. And here, and I, I do this in my in my book. If you call yourself a Jew, um, I when he says we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who of of the weak. I wonder if when we get to chapter fifteen, food and Sabbath observance, those things have fallen by the wayside. They're they're not there in the text anymore. Um, and so what the strong do is they they bear the needs of their neighbors. And I wonder if for Paul, the difference between strong and weak is not eating or not eating or Sabbath observance and not Sabbath observance. It's being able to accommodate the, uh, um, the pious and religious sensibilities of our neighbors, right? Um, so if I do a certain thing and I'm aware that that thing may offend you, can I put that away? In order to privilege and prioritize your well-being over uh, over my thing, even if the thing that I do, I do as part of a, an act of worship, a sure. worship of God. So you know, he, you know, here actually the uh, uh, Stone Campbell movement might provide a great example of this, right? Uh, many of my students will say, "I engage in, I, I, I practice, I, I." put a lot of effort into my ability to play guitar. It's always guitar, uh, guitar or, uh, or piano or drums or whatever as an expression of worship and creativity and, and, and bringing out the image of God uh, into God's good creation. And I think God, I think Paul, I do that a lot. I think Paul uh, would say without saying that's a bad thing, can you put that away for the sake of your brother who finds that? Uh, uh, who, who finds that um, an obstacle to faith. And that's without calling the, that I'm in no, no way calling non-instrumentalists the weak. Sure. The person I'm calling, the, the person I'm calling weak is the one who can't do that, who says, no, worship has to be this particular way. Yeah. Um, and so Paul has kind of flipped the reference there so that the strong are anybody who can love their neighbor as, uh, as themselves. Mm -hmm. The weak would be the one with the inability to, to be flexible. I think that's right. And so to, to use Paul's language here, you know, although in chapter 14, he does describe, you know, one is weak and, and, and eats only vegetables. I think for that person to be able to sit in a common meal in a, in a, in a Lord's supper and see the, the meat on the table, you know, the, the, the lamb or the beef or even heaven forfend the pork and, put aside their religious scruples, not because they don't think these things matter. They, they do matter. They matter for them, but because they realize, and yet I'm in a community of people who, despite my horror at the thing on the table, I'm in a community of people who are giving thanks to the creator God of Israel and finding in that beauty and fellowship and brotherhood, sisterhood. I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I, that makes, uh, that makes sense. Also appreciate, uh, 
that kind of a moment of application there, right? You know, with uh, with how a lot of folks within churches of Christ and uh, you know, maybe independent Christian churches might find uh, find some common ground with that uh, in in churches of Christ. Since to me, just like independent Christian churches, we are fiercely congregationalist. There's um, you know, and many uh, many churches of Christ uh, ha- will have. And uh, we'll have an acapella service, and then they'll also have an instrumental service as well. And it's it, it it's it's neat when those who are you know who who have no problem with the instruments will say, you know, in order for all of us to get together, you know, you other churches from around the area, um, we'll be happy to to sing acapella. And as as a guy who doesn't find it to be a salvation issue, um. I'm I'm really thrilled when when other folks can do basically like what you're saying. It's like you know this mm-hmm. this is this need not be a barrier for mm-hmm. us to be able to to worship together. It seems like that's you know Paul is arguing that with with food and some of these other things as well there in Romans uh, fourteen. I think that's exact. I think that's exactly right. Okay. So all right. So last thing I wanted to mention about the text, and then after we talk about Phoebe, I want to ask. Just what's your favorite passage in Romans? So you can give us maybe okay. one or so. But uh, okay, so Phoebe shows up, Romans sixteen. Um, he he starts off with this language of "I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a a servant or a deaconess, right? However English, whatever English translation you want to go with there, um, a diakonos of the church in uh, in Sancria. And um, tell us, you know." Based on this language of of how Paul introduces Phoebe, historically, what can we expect Phoebe to be doing with this letter in these churches? Help us kind of walk through uh, the last chapter of Romans for a little bit. Yeah, and 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 the the short answer, and so for those of you who are listening on double speed, you can probably fast forward after this. The short answer is we don't know, uh, <laughs> right? We we do, we we simply yeah. uh, we simply don't know. But it is common to identify Phoebe as the letter carrier, right? Mm-hmm. Paul's writing from Corinth; she's from Sancria, you know, which you know, suburb of Corinth, if you if you will. Um, she is a minister or deaconess or servant uh, of the church there, uh, a woman of some means and influence. And so we often infer wealthy, maybe a homeowner, probably a hostess of the church. The church meets in her uh, in her home. Mm-hmm. And if it meets in her home, probably fairly authoritative over the church. And that's why I think, you know, the translation of minister there for uh, for uh, for diakonos uh, in chap- in verse one is is not necessarily inappropriate. Okay. Um, um, so she, it's it's common to say she's the letter bearer, bearer right? She brings the letter. You know, you can't just drop it in the blue post office and think this is going to get to Rome. <laughs> right. That things have to travel by foot. Um, often you find visitors or travelers, um, or maybe if you're well connected, you can get this lumped in with official correspondence that's traveling uh, to and from. Uh, cities, but how you get a piece of mail, particularly a letter the length of Romans, um, yeah. from one city to another, really involves a human being traveling from that city to another. Mm-hmm. So Phoebe and anyone that she's traveling with bring the letter with her. Yeah. Now, as to your your question, what is she doing? I think that's really interesting. Um, there's a, a a book I read recently a, uh, that, that brings kind of the insights of oral performance and performance criticism to uh, to Paul's letters. And the author uh, argued that um, that we should read Romans using gift giving kind of ideas that the letter 
is a gift that Paul gives to Phoebe and that Phoebe gives to the various congregations or houses in Rome that are reading this letter. Mm -hmm. And so he very much imagines Phoebe as, um, um, this will sound trite and I don't mean it to be trite. It's just the best analogy I can think of as kind of like a Santa Claus figure who arrives at a church <laughs> and hands, hands the letter to somebody in the church and then they, they read it. Uh, publicly and okay. you know phoebe's probably there but they they read it publicly i don't find that as persuasive um or at least not as interesting here's what i think is interesting again with the caveat i don't know right sure. i don't know what yeah. phoebe's doing yeah. but i think it's interesting to consider the possibility that phoebe as the letter bearer may also have been the presenter of the letter the one yeah. who read the letter out to the roman uh congregations uh, as they met um, she's she's the one who's intoning the letter who's interpreting it through her tone of voice through her pitch through her speed through her glances and gazes um, perhaps stopping to reread a piece for emphasis or to clarify something and I like that because I like to raise the possibility don't know if this is true or not I only raise it as a possibility that the first time anybody heard some of these famous passages that a lot of us have written on our hearts, right? Like, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, or uh, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, or uh, the wages of sin is death, but the but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, or, you know, I mentioned before, who will save me from this uh, body of death? Yeah. Um, uh, or there's now no condemnation and for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. You can go on and on. There's, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, if, if there's not dozens, there's more than a dozen yeah. of these famous passages in Romans. And I, and I, I like to ask my students, what if the first time anybody heard these words, it was in a woman's voice and that prompts them at least to consider the intonation and the connotation of these well-worn phrases that we can hear without hearing because we know them so well to hear them fresh and ponder them new. Historically, it might be inaccurate, but it, uh, I, although I don't think it's necessarily inaccurate, I think it's, I think it's, um, uh, I, I hesitate to say likely, it's certainly possible, certainly yeah. possible. But at the very least, the act of considering it causes us to rethink, rehear these words again, maybe almost uh, as if for the first time. Yeah, based on, I haven't done a, a a ton, right? Like I'm not um, like I'm not Randy Richards or some of these other folks who have done just a ton of work in this kind of stuff. But based on what I have read, it it is at least I think plausible that Phoebe is there. She's the one, you know, she's the named individual. It would make mm -hmm. sense that she and Paul would have talked about these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you know, we actually get down to the nuts and bolts of like. Where is she going to put certain stress? You know, will she read a read a line back? You know, for emphasis, like like any like anybody mm -hmm. presenting anything. I mean, whether whether it's a sermon, you know, or like a devotional at chapel at school, or yeah. you know, or an academic presentation at the mm -hmm. society, the professional societies that you and I run in. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff happens. Mm -hmm. it, it it at least makes sense, right? To envision based on based on a knowledge of. If these kind of ancient practices, I, th I think it's plausible that yeah. she was there doing this kind of thing. And that, I mean, what an incredible compliment to her that that Paul entrusts this you know, magisterial work 
uh, to her and her team, right? She, very mm-hmm. unlikely that she would just traveled to Rome by herself from Corinth, right? right? She would have gone with right. the team. There would have been a number of folks. I mean, this, this is a whole party of folks showing up and, you know, they're going around from, uh, you know, from congregation to congregation or as many as they can squeeze into somebody's, mm-hmm. whoever has the biggest house, right? That might be mm-hmm. able to hold 20 or 30, maybe, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. And the idea that people would ask questions about this letter and, you know, let's acknowledge that we've been asking questions of this letter for 2000 years. Is it likely that the original audience didn't have any questions after and that they would ask questions? And of course, Paul's not there to answer the questions. Paul's not there to say, this is what I meant. But who is there? It's Phoebe. Phoebe's there to say, this is what he meant, or even, and this is where now I have zero, uh, I think, I think, I do think that this is likely, I just don't have any ground for, um, for, uh, identifying specifics yeah. is is Phoebe participating in the generation of the letter? In, is, is the writing of the letter collaborative? In other words, yeah. um, you know, um, and and it, and if it is, you know, does Phoebe say things like, "Well, here's what we meant." Of course, we do this anyway, right? I don't know if you you know this, but I am not on the Tennessee football team. I could be, and we would win <laughs> as many games because we're not very good. And yet, and yet, when we do win, this is how I describe it: we we won, right? So, you know, does Phoebe say, this is, this is what, this is what we meant. And yeah, it's a, it's a huge compliment to Phoebe. Absolutely. We certainly know that Paul had co, co co-senders at least, Mm -hmm. maybe co-authors, but certainly Mm -hmm. co-senders in, in others of his letters. Yeah. So that's right. All right. Moving away then from, you know, from kind of a, you know, section by section, look, let me ask a personal question. What's your favorite passage in Romans and why? Yeah. Uh, and that's a that is a difficult one because there are so many places to really just burrow in deep, like Luke in a tauntaun on Hoth. It's just there's so much. There's what a, so. What a <laughs> Um, I guess I could have said you know like Leonardo DiCaprio in a horse in the Revenant. Um, um, but I think at least as you you know at this moment as you ask me the question, I find. And this is a good Church of Christ answer, right? I find Romans six so interesting because, and you you see it in Romans six, but you see it especially in Romans five. Death is a bad thing, right? Yeah. Death is not a good thing, right? Death mm-hmm. is death is the wages of sin. Um, death reigns from um, from Adam to Moses, um, and death is the enemy who most who must be overcome. In chapter seven, death is uh, uh, death is the problem that Torah can't quite free me from. Um, and so in chapter six, you know, again, like I said, we see this in, in death, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you read the chapter carefully, we also see that there is a positive connotation to the word death. And here I do nod to Philippians 2 again, that death is the ultimate extent of Christ's faithfulness to God. And so while death is the wages of sin at the end of the chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, it is the thing that we are baptized into. It's the thing that we participate in. And why would we want to participate in Jesus' death? What what could be pleasant about participating in Jesus' death? Well, in Romans 6, um, and I think in Paul in general, Jesus' death becomes a metonym or a, 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 a handle, a, a, a way of grasping the entirety of Jesus' faithfulness to God. And so now I can see 
precisely why I might want to participate in Christ's faithfulness to God. That as I that as Christ is faithful to God, even to the point of death, and they lay his body down into the tomb, and that challenge to God's honor has been thrown, the glove is on the ground. Will he will he pick it up? Will he abandon the one who's been faithful to him uh, there to the grave, or will he raise him back up to new life? And of course, that's exactly what God does. So also we participate in Christ's death, his faithfulness. We find ourselves laid beneath the water. And then just assuredly as Christ is raised to new life, we come up out of the water, raised to new life, participating not just in his faithfulness to God, but then also God's faithfulness right back uh, to Jesus. It's a, it's a powerful, uh, it's a powerful um, explanation of the metaphoric possibilities of, of, of baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, and because my walk with Christ and my Christian faith predates my baptism, I, I, I was baptized about three years after I, I came to faith. Um, my baptism was, was e- even more significantly an act of choice, an act of obedience, an act of, I want to experience the thing that God has promised I would experience through baptism. And so Romans 6 is just a beautiful place to see that explained back to me. Yeah. I've said in uh, sermons and communion devotions before, you know, kind of this little, this little tagline that there, there are a lot of ways of life that lead to death, but there's only Mm -hmm. one way of death that leads to life. I like that way of putting it. Yeah, that's and nice. Baptism, that section there on baptism. I love how you also, you, you showed your Stone Gamble card there by going to the <laughs> baptism verse. But um, yeah, I, I think how you've described that, uh, that really makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it just this entire discussion uh, in, encapsulated in those uh, first few verses there of chapter six, that our, our participation in, in this faithfulness of Jesus is is beautifully summarized in this death, burial, and resurrection that we experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. so. uh, Raphael, really appreciate your time today, sir. If you could indulge us just for one more minute, um, help us uh, maybe find some of your some of your things that you are mm-hmm. up to. Are you on any YouTube channels? Any other podcasts? Um, <laughs> any any books or projects you you'd want to share with us? Yeah, I, I I do multimedia stuff like this, but no, I'm I, I I'm not as tech savvy as uh, those of you who host your own YouTube and podcast uh, uh, streams. So thank you so much for having me. I mm-hmm. I engage in the medieval technology of book writing, um, and so yeah, my book on Romans is if you call yourself a Jew, mm-hmm. um, and my uh, my most recent book. Uh, uh, which came out in 2018 is uh, is Jesus Darkly, uh, remembering Jesus with the New Testament. Where's my camera? There it is. Um, um, which kind of uh, explores the various ways that big chunks of our New Testament uh, uh, remember and, and talk about Jesus. Uh, I hinted before I've got some ideas on First Thessalonians that I'd like to work on. So kind of kind of doing some stuff there, but. Um, uh, yeah, for book readers, that's those are those yeah. are two good places to start right. if you're interested in some of the things I've had to say. I got my uh, I got my copy autographed by you in 2018 at uh, the Denver SBL. I think I, I think I saw you in the book exhibit. Like, hey, can you autograph this for me? It feels so lame. But it's also kind of cool, you know. <laughs> well, if it if it helps, it feels ridiculous on my end too because uh, 
I, I told my I told my my dad who you know is very far removed from the world of biblical scholarship, um, but he saw me reading something uh, that I wrote, um, you know, reviewing it, um, and uh, and I said, Dad, what you need to know is I'm famous. Dozens of people know who I am. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Raphael, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Really appreciate you tuning in with us. Thank you. It's been a treat. Take care.